and I'd just be looking down. It's like, oh my God, Michigan State's going to think that we like who let the dogs out. I would take my helmet and shoulder pads off and just walk off and, you know, I'd have to find a new place. Not advisable for Sean to say, certainly not the case, but he said it. I mean, he's a D3 he receiver from... Uh, Mount Union, I believe, but I mean, <laughs> oh, there we crack go. that block. I'm taking Sirianni. Vrabel still looks like, and it showed on the drive coming off the tee, he's still got enough ass to go out there and make some stuff happen. When I saw Brandon Staley, and, and this may be petty, doing cat cows before the game. Oh, uh, we're going to hate on cat cows <laughs> in here, man? I, you got to see the Super Bowl rings during the recruiting process and dump them out on the table. This year, we looked at that schedule and go, why shouldn't we win every one of these games? Yeah, so what is that podcast called? It's called like Momentum. I was talking before I moved out to Southern California in the last year. I'd been living out in Connecticut, you know, grew up there and was working at ESPN for the last six and a half years before that. And the amount of people you meet and can interact with out here versus when you're on the island in central Connecticut, because it's me, everyone I went to high school with because I grew up out there, and then everybody I worked with at ESPN. Out here, you get the melting pot. Everyone yeah. wants to come to Los Angeles. Everyone wants to visit, so it's nice when stuff like this pops up, and, uh, and we can make it happen, man. I was going to ask, so you've been here for a year, right? Yeah. What's the biggest difference, East Coast, West Coast? I mean, obviously, all the creators are in Southern California, so sure. that's a big thing, but like even hanging out with girls or friends or like just people around. Are you single? Are you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I am. It, it, it's funny. And I've said this to people like growing up and this is you know, the East coast bias. I was in Connecticut from the time I was in third grade on, I was born in South Jersey when my dad was playing for the Eagles. So I was raised on the East coast. I got that Midwest tinge from the five years in South Bend, but people are just so mean in the East coast. And I kind of, there's part of me that misses it sometimes. Cause it's that sort of like gruff, brutal honesty. We're here. People like soften the blow a little bit on some stuff and everything's a little slower. It's a little more relaxed. It's very blunt out there. I mean, my brother lives in Massachusetts outside of Boston now too. So I go back there and it's a total 180 in the people I'm dealing with. And there's part of me that misses that little, that little note of home. Right. Yeah. I just got back from New York. I was recording some episodes out there in the city. And it's just, it's just funny. You can tell the difference in like just speed also, like the yeah. way people walk, interact, speak. I don't know. I, I like the West coast. Though. I feel like there's more to do in LA versus New York. Like I like, I like the outdoors. So you could hike, surf. I love skiing. I can't right now while I'm playing. But, sure. Um, hopefully afterwards and just that whole environment. I think. Do you see any similarities between the two? Because I went out to New York. I had to do something for work out there a few weeks ago and I hadn't been to the city in a while, you know, growing up out there, you're train right away in Connecticut. So we go there every once in a while, but I didn't major in it by any means. And I went out there this time after being out here for a year. And I said, oh, they're actually really similar because you've got very defined neighborhoods, very different flavors in each one, kind of like you have around here. It's just here. You spread it out and you get a little bit more nature in the middle. Whereas New York, you just stack it up like Legos one on top yeah. of the other. What I've noticed because I'm from here is... Um, the people who actually drive this city are all transplants from the East Coast. Yep. So they have that edge. They've, you know, tempered it a little bit because people are nicer out here. People talk Definitely. about it. They're not. No, they're not. They're not going to help you, but they are nicer. Yes. You know, so a lot of like my dad is a, my dad's from Philly. He's a Philly guy. Oh, He's yeah. here. You know, there's a lot of Eagles fans out here. There's a lot of, you know, we didn't have a team for the majority of my life until a couple years ago. So everybody's kind of has their allegiances to their East Coast roots a bit. 
man, I would pay to watch just a camera follow your dad around Los Angeles when he first got here, taking a Philly guy and transplanting him into the middle of L.A. That is a yeah. fascinating yeah, reality I say, TV show. Uh, I say Wooder just to mess with him. That's you, know, right. I, you know how long it took me to stop saying Wooder and to <laughs> have my son do this as a joke? What does that mean? I've never heard that before. That's how people in Philadelphia say water. Yeah. Oh, oh uh, okay. yeah. They, they, I thought it was like a different word. Yeah, no, it they, is. No, it's not It's not the same word. Well, and they call it like slushies. It's water ice, right? Water ice. Yeah. yeah water bottle. Yep. You know. Oh yeah, I say he's so. Does he have to like go back home and re up at a Wawa every once in a while to keep the credentials <laughs> fluid there? Yeah, in Philly? Exa exactly. Yeah. At a boy. So you think you're gonna stay out here for a little bit? Yeah, I'm gonna try to. It, it's been nice. You know, one of the things when I when I left Connecticut and, and part of the the move, you know, it was a great opportunity with DraftKings. Uh, they've been an awesome partner, and, and it was cool creatively to challenge myself in that way at that time. But. Also in leaving ESPN, where again, I had grown up since the third grade. I was back there. I was a house cat. I lived in a residential neighborhood. I had a house that I bought there, and I was the only, you know, single, not married guy on a block full of everyone that was families and kids. And so I just thought, all right, now that I can do something remote, what's the most opposite thing of Connecticut that I can think of? And I got to come out here for work a bunch at the beginning of my time at ESPN and had a bunch of friends in the area, spent a lot of time in the South Bay specifically. And so I thought, all right, you know, I, I, as long as I can do it out here, because I've always been a guy, I'm going to go where the job is. I'm going to do what they need me to do. That's going to be the thing for right now, because I don't have a wife, because I don't have a family, I don't have people to answer to. I'm going to go where the job is and where the opportunity is. But for this time where, all right, I can kind of have my cake and eat it too on that front, why not try something different? So I've been fortunate. i got a great group of friends down here. It's been great with work opportunities also but just in general good vibe definitely good vibe with the venture now of like non-traditional media with like all the athletes having their own podcasts yeah. and guys outside of like the espn the traditional you know fox sports or something like that nbc like how does that play or like DraftKings, what you're doing now sure. versus where you were before which was i guess more secure and you had you know kind of a different approach on your day-to-day -day versus like maybe more freedom now yeah, there's more responsibility. Yeah. And that's, that's the, I think, the way I've started to realize it is, you're right, at one of the bigger, older institutions, so Fox, ESPN, CBS, all the brick-and-mortar spots there, the places that people trust, their blue-chip stock, everyone's going to go there for their news. There is a certain understanding, and I had to learn this as someone who, you know, again, because of my last name, the opportunities afforded to me early in my time there, I didn't have to go through local television. I didn't have to go and haul a camera by myself to go set up a shot at a high school football game and learn how to go there and basically have to paddle your own canoe early on. I was very fortunate, and I had to make the most of that opportunity, but I also had all of the safety of that ESPN network. You've got a dedicated audience coming there. You've got people to basically do all the stuff around the show. You just got to do the talk. You have to have your information ready and be ready to go there. And so it's been fun and an interesting and creative challenge to now have to figure out, all right, how do I navigate some of that other stuff here? I've been I've turned into my own best guest booker at this point. So yeah. the relationships that I've had with athletes that I've played with, with SIDs and schools and college that I've called games for now learning, hey, reaching out, how to, you know, write the email the right way to go and try and ask for a player or a coach, how to set that up, how to do some of the things on the front and back end that weren't on my plate before necessarily 
but it also does give you some of the freedom to be a little bit more nimble, to talk about some things that maybe when Disney is signing your paychecks aren't as you know likely to get on air at that point, which isn't a criticism. I never felt muzzled there. It's not anything like that. I never felt like you know that's never been my bag as an analyst or someone who works on radio. I never felt like I couldn't say anything. I, I have nothing but glowing things to say about my time at ESPN. But you get to cuss a little more. That's really what it comes down yeah, to is, yeah. you know, when Mickey's signing your paychecks, you don't cuss. I always called it my grandparents' house voice. When I go over to my grandparents' house, I you know cuss like a sailor off air. I get to grandma's house, snap into that in a heartbeat. So that's what I always called it on air. And again, it's not a criticism. It's just a reality of the situation. So yeah. you get to try more things. You got a little bit more leeway because you're smaller, you're newer, you're nimble. So that's kind of been the fun part of DraftKings and what we're trying to do now. And do you feel like there's a higher ceiling going with a corporation like DraftKings or going on your own outside of a traditional media sense? Um, I think it depends on what you want to get out of it. Like, you know, let's, I, I'm not going to sit here and act like ESPN's not an incredibly high ceiling. Like, what a cool thing I got to do for so long. The amount of times that I would pinch myself working with people that I had watched for years. My, I remember the first time I went on SportsCenter just sitting there and looking around at the set like, man, I've been that watching cool. sports. I used to watch SportsCenter three times a day as a college kid. And even with the familiarity with dad, there's something to, hey, I lived an experience through him versus now someone's going and asking me my opinion on those same sets there. So that was pretty freaking cool, yeah. you know, getting to be around. I always said for me too, the biggest thing every year was getting to cover the national championship for college football. It's a game I played in as a player. It's the sport that I know the most. You know, I didn't have a long NFL career. I had a couple of tryouts, had a couple of camps, a cup of coffee. But I got to play college football at the place I'd grown up wanting to play, and I'd gotten to play in that game. And so every year that was sort of my stop and pinch me moment for, wow, what a cool thing, how grateful I am to be at this spot. So there were some cool highs, but I think the difference now and the cool opportunity about breaking out on your own and being a part of something new is – you're really asking people to choose you. Like at ESPN, they're choosing the four letters. They weren't coming there for me. Maybe some people were, but in general, most of your audience is people that just understand, hey, we trust ESPN. They've been giving us a great product for years and we're gonna go there. Now on the outside, it's, all right, well, when I ask someone to download the podcast, I'm asking them to spend an hour a day with me. Yeah. And there is something cool as you're growing that to see the community that forms of people that have made that choice. And it is super humbling and it's so corny, but every time I like go to a concert now or something, or I'm at an event where all these people have come for one thing, even if it's on a way grander scale, I always think, man, what a cool thing that at any time someone would choose to come and hang out with us and give us an hour of their time during their commute, on their way to a workout, heading to practice or whatever they're doing in their life. They let you in there, and that's a really special relationship between the listener and those of us that do the talking. And so I think, if anything, it's made me more hyper-aware and more grateful for that as a ceiling for how much you can connect with the people that are listening when all of a sudden it's more of your name, image, and likeness put onto this thing. Yeah, no, I think that's cool. I think that's really cool. In terms of your transition um, from your playing career to now your career in media, do you feel – I know I felt this way when I first started doing this stuff – you know, you played in the national championship, you played in the NFL, but you're a very, very talented sports host and commentator. Do you feel like this almost suits you more, just your natural gifts and genetics or just being around it and intrinsically, you know, learning so much about it than even football was? Because oh, yeah, I'm way better at this naturally than <laughs> right. I ever was at football. I was the really? ultimate try hard technique guy, undersized offensive lineman, like every step of the way. I was fighting that sport. 
And it was one of those things. Yeah, you know, to a certain point, especially through high school. I mean, playing Connecticut high school football. It's not a bunch of world beaters out there, so I could go and kick ass. <laughs> it's underrated, good. man. It's underrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 we'll go with that. Um, but uh, no, it, it was definitely one of those things. I was a chubby, aggressive kid who liked to talk a lot, and so football okay. and then talking about football after the fact kind of suited me well. But yeah, I always knew and. People always ask, did I have memories of my dad as a player? I didn't. I was super young when dad was finishing up his NFL career. All my memories are of him as a broadcaster. I wanted to be my dad. So we had similar personalities. And to your point, I got to watch him do that over the years. And I got to pick his brain about that just as much as football. And so, yeah, I think this definitely came more naturally to me just based on my personality because physical makeup-wise, I was you know definitely more than the average population suited for the sport. But you guys, you guys know you get to college and you see some of the freaks that are going to go on to decade-long NFL careers. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I can still remember some of those first hits I saw in my freshman training camp. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, these dudes are built a little different <laughs> right now. And so, yeah, I, I definitely felt more naturally at ease here. But at the same time, it's just like football and that that'll get you so far. And then after that, it's going to be, all right, well, how much do you care about working at the specifics of this putting in the reps and getting the volume in it to actually get better, and then having an idea of what you're actually interested in once you've been able to do a bunch of different things, hopefully in the interest. That was what I was most fortunate probably is ESPN let me do so many things when I was there. You know, I got to work digital coverage for them. I got to do radio, which I think is a great foundation for anybody getting into this, TV, podcasting. If you can do radio, you could do pretty much anything after that. And so getting to do all of that, getting to do television, getting to call games, which I love doing, all of those things as a foundation help me now going forward when opportunities come up going, all right, what am I actually interested if I've got a choice in that matter at all? I want to ask you about that 2012 run you guys had at Notre Dame. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's so memorable for a lot of reasons. Obviously, 12-0, the national championship, the way it went, everything that happened with Manti, obviously with the documentary. Everyone, yeah. everyone knows that story. I don't know if you just have any kind of insight like behind the scenes did you guys know that was a really special team you guys had because that was your fifth year right yeah that was my last year and we had been a very average football team for, I mean we were so good at football that our head coach got fired after my sophomore year so that's how things were going there I came in under Charlie Weiss and then I did my last three years under Brian Kelly and I would say the difference that year and I will never forget Rocket Ishmael came in who's you know, one of the all-time Notre Dame greats great NFL player after that he came in and he talked to us about the difference between the best teams he'd ever been on and the worst teams he'd ever been on. And he said, talent-wise, there wasn't always a huge difference, especially in the NFL. Everyone's great there. But he said the difference was when the schedule would come out at the beginning of the season, the bad teams he was on, you'd look at the schedule, be like, man, that's going to be a tough one. Like, I don't know if we're going to get that one. You know, man, we got to go on the road here at that point in the season. And it was the best teams. He says, we saw the schedule and we saw every game. Why shouldn't we win that? Mm. And that was how we felt going into that last year. We looked at that schedule and go, why shouldn't we win every one of these games? We had a very veteran core on both sides of the ball, especially up front in the lines of scrimmage. We had a bunch of talented young guys that stepped up for that year. And so there was definitely that difference in mentality, but you still got to go do it. The biggest takeaway I had from that year is winning is so much harder than I knew. Like we, and it's not to discredit any of the coaching staff or players that came before me. I got coached by some unbelievable human beings and I got to play alongside some incredible leaders and players. We just hadn't put it all together at that point. We didn't know, have consistently the reps at doing the things necessary. Yeah. And my fifth year, my offensive line coach is a man named Harry Heastan who just finished up his last year at Notre Dame this year. He had two different stints. 
and I think is the best college offensive line coach of this modern era, one of the best of all time. He was the guy that was the coach when, you know, Quentin Nelson, Ronnie Stanley, Zach yeah. Martin, Mike McGlinchey, that run of first-round offensive linemen from Notre Dame, those are he stand guys. And is it he, LSU now? Uh, no, he is uh, retired now. Oh, he's done. Okay. So he retired this last year. He stayed, He came back with Marcus for year one at Notre Dame last year after leaving originally and going and coaching with the Bears in the NFL where he had also coached on two stints. And the standard that he set in that room, Notre Dame's offensive line room has a proud tradition. There's a ton of great names and All-Americans in that room and guys that had come before. But the pride he had in that room and the standard that he set for us each and every day on what it's going to take. Hey, we're going to be out at practice before everybody else. We're going to be out there a half hour, 45 minutes, doing walkthroughs in full pads. And we're going to be out there 45 minutes after everyone else, doing mirror dodge after you've done a full day's worth of practice and all of these things where you're already exhausted. And then we're going to go and we're going to watch more film. We're going to do it together. And everything you do on and off the field as an O-line unit is going to be together. And you are going to be the tip of the spear. If this team succeeds, it is going to be because of us. And every day we came to work, that standard was uncompromising and unflinching. And every day, you knew if you messed up, it wasn't just we were doing one drill to get to the next drill. It was everything had a purpose. If it wasn't going to show up in a game, why were we going to waste time on it? And we were going to do it until everyone got that right. And that made the season, honestly, like in real time, very difficult to get through. Because you're going through and we're winning all these games and all my friends are like, it's supposed to be awesome. I was like, I wake up every day nervous. <laughs> about letting the team down, about letting him down, about getting my ass chewed on Friday because I got beat by Stefan Tuitt in two-minute drill on Thursday when we're running it in practice. and But that's what it takes. And, you know, I've heard – I'm not comparing us as a program and them as a program, but I'm saying there's, there's similar through lines in what it takes to be great at a high level that I think Coach He stands specifically and what he helped in our room that year embody. And what I've heard from the guys who talk about Nick Saban in Alabama and who have had him in the pros – because I remember it was, I think it was Deron, Jonathan Allen or Deron Payne, one of the guys who's in Washington now, was on a podcast and said, everybody thinks they want to go and play for Alabama until they get there. Then you find out how much you really want all that. Yeah. And it was that same sort of thing where, hey, that wasn't going to be for everybody, and you were going to find out how much you really wanted to give to this. But, man, if you gave it all, he was going to give you everything in return. And so that and, and my experience with him in that position room, my experience with the rest of that team was just us kind of learning that year, hey, this is actually what it takes to be able to go out and go 1-0 every week. And to have the confidence in the middle of the game when you're down 21 points to a pit team that you shouldn't be losing to, to just say, hey, we're going to go out the next drive and just try and make it happen. You guys know, people say that all the time, that reset. People talk about momentum. It takes a mature team to not buy into any of that stuff, and I think that's what we ended up becoming that season. That's that's my next question. When you talk about the transition from Charlie Weiss to uh, Brian Kelly, the word you used was, I did three years under Brian Kelly, which to me almost sounds like you know I served under Kelly. And I don't oh. know if it's a Freudian slip, but obviously the intensity is there. His resume speaks for itself. So much has been made of him with the transition to LSU. Sure. And some of kind of the funny things that we've seen as fans. Can you give us like some behind the scenes of who Brian is and what it's like as a day under you know? Yeah, and I want to be clear. That's just the way I talk. There's <laughs> no, nothing, no, no, nothing I, to I, read no, into. It was just interesting because it's. I, I do have, and I have a lot of good feelings for both of them. Because listen, Charlie Weiss could administer an ass chewing and ran a tight ship too. I mean, that's the right. Patriot way that came into town. So I, I think there was great discipline with both. 
And I still have a great relationship with Coach Weiss to this day. I've seen Coach Kelly, obviously, through a lot of this, too. But I would say the biggest strength, and this is what I told a lot of people at LSU, because when this change made, I got a lot of LSU radio stations and people that were calling me asking, you know, hey, what are we getting in Brian Kelly? And I truly think as a coach, he understands where his feet are as well as any coach in college football. Meaning when he gets there, he's gonna look around at the resources available and he's going to maximize them. He's the, the CEO type coach, right? Where he's gonna delegate responsibility, he's got assistants that he trusts, he's got the things that are in place, and then he is going to figure out, right, how do we maximize what we've got here? For us at Notre Dame, it was, hey, you can recruit incredible tight ends, offensive and defensive linemen here. We're gonna lock that down. We're gonna have quality depth at those positions on both sides of the ball. And then, you know, they got better at recruiting in the defensive secondary. The quarterback position, you know, we got better at recruiting the quarterback position. There were always good guys there that you were trying to maximize, but the foundation was going to be an O-line and D-line team. And obviously the tight end storied program that we, you know, have been and continue to be under him. Now at LSU, hey, like, listen, you got great wide receiver talent there. You've got an incredible dynamic dual threat quarterback that Brian's always loved at whatever spot he's been at. So I think he's very good at surveying the scene, understanding what this p particular program needs, and then creating an environment for that to happen. Do you think we're giving him too much credit if that fake accent and the recruiting videos he did on purpose to get like social media views? Uh, I, th I think so. <laughs> I think it's one of those things. I always tell the story. I, um, my sister-in-law is from Boston, and so she doesn't have the accent as much anymore, but it comes out when she gets angry. But her family, they all got the Boston accent. Her cousins all got the Boston accent. So when my uh, brother and her were getting ready to get married, we said, why don't we do a, like a guy's weekend with all the guys that are going to be in the wedding party? I hadn't met a lot of her cousins and stuff yet. So we went and rented a house up in Lake Winnipesaukee, and we were just hanging out. And they're all sports fans. So we're sitting around, and this is you know, peak Tom Brady and the Patriots in the middle of their run and all that stuff. And I'm just kind of sitting around taking it all in. And I'm sitting here and listening to those talk, you know, these guys talking about Tom Brady and the, you know, the Celtics and the Sox and all that stuff. Yeah. And the next time I went to open my mouth, a little bit of the accent came out because right. I was just sitting there kind of absorbing it the entire time. And yeah. so I'm thinking maybe it was just something like that where you're down here, you're hearing it, you kind of slip into the comfort a little bit. One week, though? That's crazy. <laughs> hey, man, Louisiana. I don't know if you spent much time down in Louisiana. Right. does not take long. They will yeah. take you in like one of your own very one of their own very quickly. Yeah. One of my favorite experiences was tailgating before an LSU game. Man, those people are welcoming and accommodating. And, man, really? do they have a lot of ice luges down there. <laughs> right. That's hilarious. No, I mean, it makes sense as far as, like, changing himself. That's what you said, according to the environment. Sure. And listen, that went too far. Right, yeah, it, yeah. It, it went too far. But understanding the dynamics of Louisiana recruiting, like, it, it's going to be a lot different than a Midwest Indiana sense in South Bend. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, Notre Dame, you're recruiting nationally, right? Certainly you want to, you know, impact the footprint there in the Midwest, Indiana, Ohio, a lot of the same places the other Midwest schools are recruiting. But you're a national program. You go a little bit everywhere. LSU, hey, it's about the relationships you got, especially first and foremost in your backyard. You know, you plant the flag and you build the fence around the state of Louisiana yeah. that's got so much football talent in it. Yeah. What do you think uh, Notre Dame SC this year? <sighs> it's going to be interesting, man. I think, uh, you know, for we were talking before we got on air here. SE is fascinating because this should be the year. The schedule lines up perfectly. I mean, really, until you guys head to South Bend, it's mm. not like you have to break much of a sweat. You still have Utah, UW, UCLA. But those are all after Notre Dame. Like, you've got that. Your, yeah. your schedule's backloaded. But I guess I'm saying as far as yeah, the grind of a long season, yeah. the beginning of the schedule sets up really nicely, and then you have the trip to South Bend. And then, yeah, the beauty of the Pac-12 this year is so many of the top teams have to play each other between yeah. UW, Oregon, Utah, USC. Like, we get to see them have it out. Yeah. But uh, 
It's going to be fascinating. Listen, last year, the exercise and frustration that was trying to watch Notre Dame's defense corral Caleb Williams. He's like a greased pig out there. That game was insane. You can't get your hands around, dude. So That long run, I've never seen anything like it. No, it's he, and he's got plays like that every day. Like I remember getting yep. ready for that game. I turned on the Utah game, and three plays in. Remember that Zach Wilson pro day throw that lit everybody yeah. up? He did that in a game. Oh, yeah. Caleb did that three plays in it, and the only reason it didn't hit was because the receiver dropped a ball that he put right in the bucket, yeah. rolling the opposite direction, sidearm fling like 30, 40 yards on a frozen rope. Yeah. So, Well, as a quarterback, and I think you could probably relate, Cole, like, a part of it's making the actual throw, which is very, very difficult. Like, even open grass, no defense, like, those throws are hard to make. But also the confidence, like the mental construct it takes to even attempt that throw. Right. To me, as a quarterback, like if I'm standing behind, I'm like, like, I, like there's a concept, like I, I could see the coverage. I'm like, okay, I have a good idea where I'm going to go based off of like, you know, risk of the ball getting deflected or interception. Like obviously you want a good completion depending on whatever the down and distance is. Sure. I mean, these are attempts that like I wouldn't even try. Like, like and then he actually makes the throw in that situation in a huge game. Like I, it just blows my mind. It's, it, the the confidence the confidence is number one though. Oh, but like, and that's I think true across the board. And it's a great point about how most of us think because you know, listen, I'm in the rank and file of players. I was a very average college football player, and so I did things by the book, like you said, based on the situation. All right, what's the down and distance? What's the defense showing us here? What's the thing that can hurt us the most? And what do I do to protect against that first and foremost? I'm not thinking, man, what can I do to get the biggest, best highlight pancake right. on this particular play? Because I didn't have that luxury, like higher, you know, a hierarchy of need. For Caleb and for the guys that are best, and I heard Dan Orlovsky say it uh, talking about quarterbacks is, what's their stinger? Mm. And for him, that's the stinger where you're so confident in your ability to more often than not, enough times, make the plays. Because between the relationship between player and coach, it's how much capital do you have built up on the plays that you make? You know, if you're a D lineman that's going to jump out of your gap 90% of the time, but you make the play 85% of the time, coach is going to live with that. Because you've shown more often than not you can do that. But those first few, it takes confidence to be able to do that and build up that goodwill over time, which is just insane. The Pac-12 just in general is so deep. As we were talking before, like Oregon, SC, Utah, UW. Good luck picking a team. you got to give Colorado a couple years, primarily because with Dion, none of us really know what's going on. We see videos. We don't really know. But we do know the recruiting element is there. And that takes years, right? You're going to, you know – we're going to see the classes that he kind of compiles and the overhaul that he makes in Boulder. But it's going to take some time, and I think we have to be patient with Colorado. And, I mean, the Big 12, I think that's a good move for them. I think that's going to you know, give them more of a competitive kind of advantage against those teams, the way that the Big 12 is losing Texas and Oklahoma and things like that. I think that's a bigger fish in a small pond I think is going to be a good thing, and I hope Dion succeeds there. I, re- I really do. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. And to your point about the timeline for it, to me, that's the whole point of this year. Like people are talking about what they're going to do this year. To me, I'm not going to say it's irrelevant because there are players on that team whose whole lives have built up to this year. And so I want good things for all of them involved. But what he's done in overhauling and using the tools at his disposal to flip the roster is try and reset the foundation really quickly so next year all of a sudden you can start to be competitive. Like yeah. To me, that's the idea that we talk about the portal used for players all the time, but for the tools that coaches have, it seems to be this idea, well, hey, if I am Brian Kelly or Lincoln Riley coming into this program, let me immediately infuse it with a bunch of guys that I trust, a bunch of high-talented guys at key areas, and try and see if I can't spark this thing a little quicker than it would have happened normally where you had the transfer rules that we played under. Yeah. 
Where do you, with them going to the Big 12 and obviously SC leaving and all these schools moving around, where do you see conference realignment going? I mean, eventually we're going to get to like the one big super conference, right? Like everyone's, we've all like whispered about it and talked about it just for like funsies over the years. But the driver for this has been money and I would say a lack of feeling of security for most teams. Like no one's running college football. This is a ship without a captain. It always has been. And it's just succeeded because people love football and because people love watching football. So the money's been there and the support's been there and round and round we go. Why would any of it stop? Like none of these programs are going to all of a sudden sit up and go, all right, well, we're exactly where we want to be. Life is really good. We're comfortable with the revenue share we've got amongst all these teams. And we're just going to sit tidy. Like that's not how any of this works. Like this has been a sum is great, more is better economy around college sports. And so eventually the top teams are going to look down at the bottom of even the big conferences and go, well, why are we sharing the money with you? You don't pull your weight like we pull our weight. What if we go with the other teams that pull the weight and we just do one big weight pulling thing up here for even more money and you guys can just go play in your own sandbox? Like anyone who wants to know about the future of college football just needs to look at European soccer. It's the same setup as far as the disparity, the wealth gap, the amount of teams involved in it. Like it, it, it all is very predictive of where this can and probably will go. Well, European soccer uses the relegation method though. If you have a bad year, then you go down. So that means if, if a, like a team in the SEC wins like three, four games, you're going down to FCS. Oh, I know. They'll <laughs> never let that happen over here. Because the funny part about the English Premier League is that came up because all of the like heads of those clubs looked at the U.S. and looked at the NFL and uh -huh. said, wait a minute, they're making a ton of money. Why don't we do more of what they do? Mm -hmm. And the one thing you had to still keep over there because so much of that's based on local tradition and the idea that you can move up in the fluidity, their fans would burn those stadiums to the ground if oh, you remove nice. that. Yeah. But here, it's never been relegation or promotion. And so you're never going to get that to be inserted into the system, yeah. even as fun as it would be. That's some of, you know, July radio, that's the stuff you love doing is throwing out. What if we did relegation? <laughs> right. Who would, you know, North Dakota State taking Arizona's spot in the Pac-12 or something right. like that. Like, you can have all those conversations, but I, I don't know how real they are because, again, you know, money sign. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of North Dakota State, um, what are your thoughts with the 49ers quarterback situation? Is Brock the guy there? So... We'll start with the last one. Is Brock the guy there? We have no idea. Like, we know he came in and performed better than most rookies in his situation ever have. Like, what he did in that sample size was pretty exemplary. Oh, yeah. While also understanding, came over right as Christian McCaffrey came over and that offense all really unlocked. Like, he is not the most important piece. He's probably not the third or fourth most important piece on that offense. But he played really well for them in some critical moments and deserves a ton of credit for that. But, you know, like anything else, math is going to happen like over a longer sample size that stuff goes down like those things are hard to maintain a pace of once you're the guy going in over a whole season he's coming in off an off-season elbow surgery like all of the things that are factors in that so we'll see like it, what an awesome story if he continued to be the dude and he's in the most quarterback solvent offense in the nfl so he's got a really good shot of that i give john lynch credit because so many times people you know put their hat on, you know, we took this guy, we're going to ride him out, you know, because this is my job. They don't seem married to the sunk cost thing. The way they came out and were like, Brock's hurt, but he's still the guy. The second he gets back, he's our starter. You don't see that a lot, that kind of level of, I guess, lack of ego or, or maturity or a combination of both with front offices. Um, so I don't think they're necessary. I, th I think they're going to, you know, hey, if he's worth a third, and that's the what's best for our team right now, then maybe he needs to go. 
I, yeah. I think, you know. It takes a lot of confidence. Let's put it that way. Like, there's yeah. a confidence that comes in leadership and be, being willing to stand 10 toes on a decision like that. Because you're right. The thing that comes to mind for me was the Matt Flynn and Russell Wilson start to the Seahawks tenure there. They paid him a bunch of money. Russ came out in the third or fourth round, whatever it was, and he was clearly the better guy. So they said, we're going to start the better guy. Our reputations be damned. And it worked out for everybody involved. So you're right. If you trust the leadership there, which at this point they've earned that in every other aspect of that team outside of developing the quarterback spot, then you get to go out and make a decision like that and everyone lives with it. It's so nice to see, though, as like all players or former players, like I feel like we've all been in programs or teams where there's so much politics. Like if, you know, undrafted guy. Sure. Like you draft someone, obviously they're going to get a million times more opportunities than you are more likely to make a team, even if you perform better. But in these situations, and I guess that's why they've had success, to your point, is they're willing to admit that they're wrong or, or start an undrafted guy over a drafted guy or, you know, start the guy who, I mean, what, what did Brock win? No, Brock was the last pick. Never mind. Yeah, Brock was, Brock was, but Brock was dead last. Yeah, yeah. But, and it, it, it's weird, though, because it's like it's at that one position. Like every other position, right. they're eating caviar with high-round draft picks. Like Debo didn't come cheap in the draft. Christian McCaffrey was the highest paid back in the league they brought over. Trent Williams was a top-five left tackle. On and on down the list, Nick Bosa, they've got a D-line full of first-rounders in that room. Like everywhere else, they've been great at it. It's just this one position, which happens to be the most important position that usually defines everyone else. Because you guys know, quarterback can fix a lot of what's going on with your team. There ain't much you got to fix there. You just got to kind of go out there and do it. And that's not, again, to diminish or devalue Brock Purdy or to slander Brock Purdy. It's just the reality that this is one of those situations where it goes, all right, I got guys playing positionless football at the highest level in the NFL at damn near every spot around me. Throw George Kittle's name in that, too. I don't know how it took me that long to get to the best blocking tight end in the NFL who can also catch. <laughs> um you know, when you're in the middle of that, and I, I'd be curious from your standpoint, I, the thought yeah. process would probably be, hey, let me get the ball in those guys' hands and let's let our best players make yeah. plays. I mean, it's also such a great roster and a great system. Like, it's hard to mess up, honestly. Sure. Oh, I mean, I think I saw um, Aaron Schatz uh, does a great uh, – the almanac for uh, FTN that everyone puts out. It's an awesome, awesome, awesome resource every year. And I think last year – with like the qualifying amount of throws might've been like 150 pass attempts or something like that, at least 150 attempts. Nobody threw to more open windows than Brock Purdy. Really? Or, wow. I'm sorry, he had the second most behind Justin Fields. Yeah, He had the second lowest percentage of passes into tight windows. So by and large, he was throwing to guys that were in space and you know, that's rare, a rare commodity in the NFL, as we all know. So that's a huge advantage. And that's what yeah. you get with the caliber of players you have and having one of the best play callers in the NFL and Kyle too, who, you know, is also kind of the quarterback of this team in his own way. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, kind of not necessarily quarterback carousels, but have you seen hard knocks this yeah. year? Yeah. I, to me, this is as good as it's been since the jets. There's been a couple years where there's been a bit of a lull, but I think just the storylines alone of this Jets team have been so interesting um, to watch, whether it's the Aaron Rodgers edition, whether it's Nathaniel Hackett, who I don't think we knew how charismatic this guy was. I think at times, you know, you're not in the in the huddle or in practice, but sure. at times they almost seem feckless a little bit in Denver. But he doesn't seem – he seems like a, you know, high-energy, fun guy. Aaron loves being around him. But there was a moment, and this is where the NFL is so different from – college and a guy like Brian Kelly who can oversee everything um there was a moment where there, there was a play that he didn't like and he's probably right it probably doesn't work out of that formation <laughs> but he turns to Robert Sala and he goes yeah. we need to stop running that fucking play out of that formation how do how long does it take before we find out it doesn't work yeah. which for someone in our position who's oh, yeah. in college 
I would, I would, I would take my helmet and shoulder pads off and just walk off. And you know, I'd have to find a new place if I had said something. But Aaron Rodgers is, like you said, one of the five best quarterbacks of your lifetime, maybe ever. Yeah, yeah. And this is where uh, I, I give respect to Robert Sala, and I didn't really know um, who he was until uh, this hard knocks. He has a lot of emotional control. You can just tell. He's yeah. like, well, Aaron's probably right about this. Let me not, you know, react. And let's go over and look at it. I mean, I'm really impressed with him. With really Salah? Yes. Yeah. It, it, emotionally intelligent is probably the right way to put it. He seems very in control. Of that, Despite being, listen, he's a fiery guy still. You see him get fired up in there when it's time to go, when the defense is performing well. There's all that in there, certainly. But it's also, I mean, the, the professional level, it's partnership. Like... You're, the players, especially in Aaron's case, when you've been playing almost two decades or whatever it is, you've got just as much experience and you've got it in a different way. Like there are some coaches that are former players that carry that with him. And a lot of coaches, I want to be clear, you don't have to be a former player to be a great coach. Again, by Harry Heastam, you know, played at you know, a small school for a couple of years in college and then you know, never played again. So you can go out there and do it. But for a player, you've got the most valuable experience and feedback on all this stuff, which is you saw it firsthand. And again, Aaron's got, you know, trust is gained in drops and lost in buckets. Aaron's got buckets of trust as a player as far as how he sees the game and processes the game. And so as a coach, and Rob Sala realized this, you'd be foolish not to, from that standpoint, take his feedback on these things. Because ultimately, you can coach it, you can draw the cards, you can install it all week. If they can't go execute it, you guys know, what's it worth having a cool play in there if no one knows how to do it? And it's not actually fit in there the right way. So that kind of feedback from him, while blunt is also kind of the beautiful part about football, is you can speak and you see it with him. You talked about him and um and uh, Hackett's relationship. They'll dog cuss each other, but yeah. they know, hey, we got enough time together to know what we value in this relationship, how much we actually care each other. And so you go, you beat the hell out of each other for a couple minutes verbally, and then everyone processes it. You go your separate way, and that's how you get things done faster. That's one of the cool parts I think about sports is. You have so much trust built up. You can have honest, blunt communication like that and then just move on. Did you guys see that Garrett Wilson thing where he was wearing the sunglasses yeah. and the bucket yeah, hat yeah. on silent? Legend. That's my favorite. I wonder if that, because I haven't seen the show, but you guys have. Is that part of like the Jets culture right now where they're... Well, it had to do with... with I know. Where right. Sean, Sean Payton. Payton. Yeah. And that's something else I want to talk about. Um, if, if Mo wants to take it there. I mean, Russell didn't look great. The offensive line sure. didn't look great. It's preseason. Talking about last Let's year, relax. Right this 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 yeah. last week yeah. one of preseason. Yeah. They didn't look great. It looked kind of similar to what was going on last year. Um, Sean has said some things, which look basically what he was doing is trying to invigorate his team, saying we're not as bad as we were last year. Sure, we have talent. It's a I don't wild care. thing to say. I don't care. Coach, <laughs> I've yeah. never heard anyone speak that freely as an NFL head coach or even well, college. I mean, it's what happens when you get one of the better NFL coaches that we've had in quite some time who then went on TV and he got used to being able to share his opinion. Yeah, and do right. all that. He exactly. said, he goes, I have my fox. You think that's what it is? He even, and again, he said it himself. I was too candid. I had my media hat on at that point <laughs> still. He was letting it loose. Yeah. And so, yeah, listen, he said nothing like many people have pointed out. He didn't say anything that a lot of us on the outside have said, but it's always different. You guys know this. As players, what you say about other players and coaches, what they say about other coaches in that fraternity and community, because the outside world can be so punishing and without nearly as much information about the process that at times we all feel a little bit protective of the people in our bubble. I think there's part of that can go really badly. I think there's bad versions of people protecting too much of what goes on 
inside those situations. But not advisable for Sean to say. Certainly not the case. But he said it. And, and to your point, I mean, there was a message behind that for the team that I think was absolutely there, which is I need to get confidence back in my quarterback. I need to – that guy, you know, Russell Wilson came from the ultimate – positivity is the motive at, you know, the program that they ran out there in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Like we know with Pete Carroll, it is relentless positivity. It is win behind your sales at all time. And so Sean had to kind of sh was thinking, I'm sure I'm going to show my guy in public. I believe in him. And that I don't think last year was his fault. And there was just a lot of collateral to that, which, you know, was not advisable. Wouldn't have done that myself. Wouldn't have liked that if I was one of the guys playing for the jets, but you know, that's showbiz baby. Yeah. Well, I guess you just got to back it up. You can't have a bad year and say that. Right. Well, and I saw some people too thought it was maybe hedging, but you know, Sean came out and said, uh, we're yeah. going to be a playoff team this year. That's, that was, those were his words in that same interview that sparked all this discussion. The, I mean, between what you've got there. So you've got the AFC West where the Broncos are hoping for this. Obviously the, the Raiders situation is a little more eh than that. And then it's the same chargers question every year. Can that team stay healthy long enough to max out the talent, which there's a lot of, and they finally have a really good offensive line and everyone's excited because Callum Moore is going to push the ball downfield. I just, I pray with everything in me that we get to see them healthy. Cause like there's some stuff that would just be fun for everyone to see, right? Like in college, I want to see Joe Milton pop off this year at Tennessee guys got yeah. so much ability. We've known it since he was at Michigan, let him be good for this year. And let's have some fun. Tennessee being good last year was cool as hell. Everyone had a good time with it. Goalposts are still riding around somewhere. <laughs> and so you get all that, but in the NFL it's yeah. man, you know, they do the prompt online all the time. What if you could give one player an injury-free career in retrospect, who would it be? If I can give one team an injury-free season, let's let it be the Chargers, and let's see how high this thing can climb. Yeah. How do you feel about Brandon Staley? When I – look. <laughs> <laughs> when, so, mu so much of, um, I think, the success Detroit has had is the fact that is Dan Campbell, Campbell the, you know, is he Albert Einstein? No. <laughs> but the fact that they play so hard for him, sure. and he's a guy who was in the trenches – and understands what it feels like. He I seems mean, like an awesome dude. Guys want guys want to play for him. When I saw Brandon Staley, and and this may be petty, doing cat cows before the game. Oh, uh, we're gonna hate on cat cows <laughs> in here, gonna, man. I, That's you do super. that in the privacy of your own home that, in the yoga studio, but on the fifty yard line prior to a, a division game, I was. <laughs> hey man, I'm like, hey coach, you gotta get up right now. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing, like? <laughs> Oh my God! Has there has there ever been anything like that that embarrassed you guys before the game? Because I got one. We had well, from a head coach. From so when Charlie Weiss was at Notre Dame with us, and I've told this on air before. I'm not breaking any news here. And I said I love Coach Weiss to death, but we would every year get ready and we would make our pregame track list. We would on the whiteboard in the locker room. I don't know how you guys would do it, but in the whiteboard in the locker room, we'd all write out names and we'd go through, and the older guys would vote on you know what the track list ended up being for pregame. And when Coach Weiss was there, he had come over all the success in New England. We all knew that. You got to see the Super Bowl rings during the recruiting process. He'd dump them out on the table. Yeah. And he's like, there's one song that's got to be on there because we had it on there when we made our Super Bowl run in New England. We're like, all right, sure, Coach. Who let the dogs out by the bottom? <laughs> <laughs> so you're warming up on field. No. And, you know, the song – like. By the time you go through pregame a couple of times, you know where you're going to be when each song cuts on. Yeah. And we'd be in stretching lines, like facing where the other team is on the other side of the field. And I'd just be looking down. It's like, oh, my God. Michigan State's going to think that we like who let the dogs out. <laughs> so that one was always tough. I don't know if anything popped up like that for you guys. That's but as awful. far as like a cat camel level of embarrassment, that was one where we're kind of like, Coach, I love you to death. But, man, I really wish you hadn't gone who let the dogs out on us. Right. Do you have one, Cole? I'm trying to think. From like a coaching um, perspective, our our coach at Vandy wasn't anything like that, but we like he would always talk a lot of trash, which was cool. 
Ooh. Like, I don't know if you remember the Vandy, Florida game uh, in 2018. I don't know. It's an obscure game. So you probably sure. not. I, say, but, I, really, <laughs> I appreciate you giving me that kind of memory credit here. No, no, Thank no, you no, for no. your efforts. But there was like this whole brawl. And like, I guess you don't often see the coach like come out damn near like halfway onto the field and start yelling. It was Dan Mullen, I believe, at the time. And just cussing him out. Pointing. Who was your coach at uh, Vanderbilt at that point? Derek Mason. Okay. Oh, man, that's not surprising to me. Yeah. Derek, Derek Mason seems like a coach who absolutely will welcome the smoke. Which we love as yeah. players, which was awesome. And um, But I didn't know the backstory at the time of how that fight started, which is kind of interesting. I learned maybe like a few weeks ago from a teammate when I was out there at Pro Day. He told me. And so our corner, I don't know if I want to say his name. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, you probably know who I'm talking about. He's uh so his girlfriend was went to Florida and then the Florida players um uh, like sent him a bunch of photos of like them with her. Oh god. The night before the game. Oh god. To stir the pot. Man, that's uh that's a, that's so, a tough scene right there. Oh, awful. And uh so obviously they get talking and then like he's playing corner and say like on that sideline. Mm -hmm. So he's like maybe 10 feet away from him. Mm -hmm. And they're just chirping and then that's how it starts and then it just becomes like this whole thing, and then Coach Mason comes out, and we almost won that game, but it was mad. Yeah. But like you said, having a coach that you feel like is in the mix with you, there's definitely – there's always something to that. And as players, I think you can coach a lot of different ways and be really successful, going all the way back to your point about Brandon Staley. I think that – you know, and I don't know him personally. I know guys that have been coached by him that really enjoy the process and all that, and we've seen what he can do with the defense. Hasn't quite materialized, especially stopping the run since he's been with the Chargers, but – you know, again, I know what he's got there. You can do it a lot of different ways and be really successful. There's a lot of different personality types. But there is something really cool about having Dan Campbell in there screaming with you, knowing he could probably whoop any other coach's ass that lines up. Like when we yeah. do the coaching cage match conversations every summer, Dan Campbell and Vrabel are always near the top. Rob Sala oh, has yeah. now entered the chat as well <laughs> on that. So it is something cool about having a coach you feel like could actually physically whoop someone's ass. Who's number one? Who do you think would be the best fighter in a cage fighter oh the nfl coaches yeah. I, I i do think it's dan campbell right now and really? then there's like a, over vrabes yeah i think so like listen don't get me wrong i think vrabes on his best day absolutely it's has that dude. juice i was amazed so my dad um played in that american century golf tournament out in tahoe where steph curry won this year yeah. all those guys are out there and the second day he was or the first day he was paired with ray romano and mike vrabel which mm. is funny as hell because the only person i asked my dad before that week who he wanted to meet ray romano and then they would be getting paired together. My dad and mom watch Everybody Loves Raymond reruns every show. single night. <laughs> like, every single night. Like, they text our family group chat yesterday and go, hey, asses in seats, top five episode of Raymond coming up tonight. <laughs> they were dialed in. So dad was pumped about that, but I was blown away because Vrabel was in his group, and my dad was a former NFL defensive lineman who has lost a ton of weight since then. He's 6'5", like 230 right now. Wow. Played at 300. Vrabel still looks like, and it showed on the drive, coming off the tee, He's still got enough ass to go out there and make some stuff happen. Oh, he yeah. is definitely a big dude. So he'd be second on the list, but Dan just seems like he's a little more locked in right now, a little more in Ooh. shape, a little more ready to go. Yeah. Stamina kicks in. I go Edge Campbell there. I like it. I like Campbell. I think in, in, in tier two or three, I think Sirianni's surprising some people. He's really? got a fire. <laughs> oh, yes. yeah. he, he is great for the city of Philadelphia because he will motherfuck fans. He'll yeah. Like, hey, Does he like, really? He, yeah. He gets on the, the bench. He's like, hey. Like when they when they beat Indianapolis because yeah. mm -hmm. they had fired his 
um, mentor, uh, Frank Reich, yep. a couple weeks before, and he had some things to say about it. I mean, he literally got up on the bench and was screaming at either the fans, the press box where uh, Ursay was or whatever, mm-hmm. I don't know what, but I'm like, yo, like this is he, – he may want to put the pads Philly. on. I mean, yeah. he's a D3 <laughs> receiver from – uh, Mount Union, I believe, but I mean, <laughs> oh, crack back block. I'm taking Sirianni. Man, he, uh, yeah, he definitely knows what city he is coaching in. Yes. Like, he has done a very good job of whether it's genuine, whether he's leaning into the bit, doesn't matter because everyone in Philly knows exactly what you just talked about there. I feel like Jalen, too, the way he looks at the media and, like, he always takes accountability, like, like versus, like, a Ben Simmons type. Like, stars in Philly, you have to act a certain way. Oh, yeah, you definitely. And Lincoln, Lincoln was... Actually, he was the one who predicted almost Jalen's success before the season started, which was really surprised. I mean, obviously, it's, he's a Lincoln guy, sure. so he's going to root for him. But he brought up a really good point before his breakout season that, like, Jalen hadn't had the same continuity as, you know, for the system, offense coordinator, head coach, since, like, middle school. Like, he's always, yeah. year to year, always had a different system to learn, which is really hard, obviously, as a quarterback. And this was the very first time since sometime in middle school where he had that. And he was like, watch, like Jalen's gonna have just gonna pop off and obviously MVP caliber season. Yeah, no, it's 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 so true. And you guys know that continuity goes such a long way, not only in the guys you're playing with. We talked about the O line stuff. I used to look up every year, um, True Media used to have a stat where they would track offensive line combinations. So how many snaps a year each group on each team played together. And when you looked up at the teams that were in the Super Bowl, they were all, almost always teams that were in the top five of snaps played together because it's health yeah. and continuity. They're good predictors of things that are going to be successful at that position where we don't have a lot of stats. But for a coach and how you communicate all that stuff, like especially you said as quarterback, everyone on the TV sees them on the phone over there, but it's how are you communicating during the week? We Stuff we talked about with Aaron Rodgers, like – all that adds up and having to relearn someone's communication style every year has got to be exhausting and playing behind the best offensive line in football and playing with 2000 yard receivers certainly does help too. And having a defense that had 70 sacks, all is good. It's like we said, quarterbacks, one of the most dependent positions in football. You need so many other people to do their jobs in order for you to be able to go out there and execute too. So they like San Francisco. I mean, you talk about the teams in the NFC, the very few teams that we know are true competitors, they're built very similarly where these front offices have done an outstanding job of saying, we're going to give our quarterback everything they need. And then in Philly's case, they picked, you know, they picked Jalen. They went through the back and forth with Carson Wentz, but they said, this is going to be our guy. There was all the talk about people in the media, myself included, who were like, hey, do you hedge a little bit? You got a couple of picks high up in next year's draft. Do you see how it goes? And they said no, and he hit it in the right year, and he got the payday he richly deserves. And now they're going to continue to ride with that guy. But they said, you know, it's not this antiquated notion that, well, a quarterback's defined by how much he can do by his damn self. Like, there's one Patrick Mahomes. Not everybody can get down like that, as you guys well know. And so for them, it's, all right, we're going to give him everything. And we're going to go out there, and we're going to give him the opportunity to be great. And he took that and ran with it. When he he, – showed who he really was after that Alabama championship where Tua stepped in. You knew what type of guy he was. Um, Just the discipline that he has, um, the self-control he has to always remember, like, hey, you know, no matter how high we are, like, I'm still, you know, going to keep this team, you know, at equilibrium. Um, But I think the loss of Shane Steichen is going to play a factor, and I think um, to the benefit of – Anthony Richardson, sure. who with Steichen in, in L.A. with Herbert during his rookie year and now Hurts resurgence. What do you see in, in Indianapolis moving forward um, with that relationship? 
Uh, to your point, a great fit. Like you can copy paste a lot of that offense they ran in Philly, where they use Jalen as a huge part of the running attack. There, at least the threat of it, like it, to the point where you know Miles Sanders ends up taking a deal elsewhere because they're looking and saying, "Man, we got a quarterback that does so much in holding the backside of this defense on every play. Maybe as we pay him that money, we're going to have to, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul a little bit at running back on that." But I think it's a good fit in Carolina schematically with Anthony and especially coming in green, hasn't started a lot of games in college. And for him, most importantly, they already made the decision he's going to be the day one starter. Like this is so much different. Trey Lance is, is a cautionary tale of mm. how this can go where your goals and timeline as a team don't line up with what the quarterback you just spent all that draft capital on needs. And so Indianapolis and Shane Steichen are going to give, give him a chance to go out and make mistakes at game speed and get valuable reps. And that's what he needs right now. There's no substitute for that. And so you combine that offense that can do a lot of things to help onboard a young quarterback pretty early with where that team is right now and understanding it is best for our short and long-term future. Not to, you know, put Gardner Minshew out there, who's an awesome dude and an awesome player in this league and to be around, you know, as a backup or a guy that can be a fringe starter for you for a while. But what does that benefit us if we just spent all this money and all this capital getting Anthony Richardson here? Let's turn him loose as early as possible, and let's live with what happens after that. And I think that's a really smart move for them that'll hopefully afford him the best chance to go be successful because we all want to see these guys ball, but especially when they're as insanely talented as a guy like Anthony Richardson really is. is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I talked to a few of my boys in, like, mini camps and training camp in Indy, and, they, and I was like, yeah, like, what's, what's AR like on the field and, like, how's that coming along? And I was kind of like, yeah, it's what you would expect in terms of, like, the talent is, is indisputable. Like, you're going to have, like, three, four plays of practice, team seven, all you're like, wow. Like, how on earth did he fit that ball there? How did he launch that out there? Whatever. But then there's another three, four where it's like, well, that was stupid. You know, like, yep. just the turnovers, obviously, is number one. And then so it's like that you could fly with that at the college level. But in the pros, that's the difference between winning and losing. Like, the margins are so much smaller. So, like. I guess the question would be how quickly can you can you adapt? Yeah, and right? and and you guys know. I mean, it's the Josh Allen thing, right? Where yeah. we very rarely see people become markedly more accurate at the NFL level until Josh did it. And while ability-wise, physical makeup-wise, there's a lot of similarities between Anthony and Josh. It's not a perfect comp. It never is. No two quarterbacks are that similar, and that is such a rare instance where we can't just say that's going to be the case here anymore. But I do think that there is just something to, and we've seen this with a lot of quarterbacks that have come out. You know, Mitch Trubisky didn't have a lot of reps under his belt. There's been plenty of guys that have gone out here and not had the snaps in college to prepare as a starter, prepare like you're the guy, and then have to take the plan and execute it on the field. Like, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the Aaron Rodgers thing is, he's seen how it looks in a meeting room, and then how it actually plays out in live bullets. And he's seen it against every defense, and he's seen it in high-pressure situations. And so he can go and look pretty quickly and go, yeah, this isn't going to work. It might it might sound good right now in theory. Yeah. Like I had uh, Olin Krutz played for my offensive line coach with the Chicago Bears. When Coach Heastam was with the Bears, Olin was there, and so he would bring Olin back to work with us sometime. And the difference between – he highlighted for me the difference between how you're coached and what actually works on the field. And with Coach Heastan, we're, uh, we're palms-up punch guys, not like the thumbs-up stuff you see there. Yeah. It's palms-up like this, like a boxer. It's all about striking with your punch. We drill that over and over and over again. I mean, that was 
day one core stuff for Coach Eastan. And so we're talking with Olin, who played center. I played center and guard, so we're working with him, me and a couple of the interior guys. And we were talking about a situation where you've got, like, all right, let's say you got double-edge presser. So you got linebackers walked up on both sides. you got a three down front. So guy covering the nose, guys covering each tackle there. And they're going to saw off the edge. So everyone's going to crash down inside. Now you've got a 290-pound 3-4 D end that's crashing down to you at the guard spot or crossing off face all the way over to the center spot. He's like, he's like, you know, that guy, when I played in the NFL, that, those are the Holodinatas in the world. You're not going to sit there and be able to hit them like that and absorb it. He goes, sometimes you got to get up underneath the guy. Your thumb's got to go up and you got to brace a little bit. He goes, you know, he's like, I know, and he knew better than us what Coach Eastan taught. But he's like, in this particular situation, especially for me, I was an undersized guy. Olin was an undersized guy. He's like, that's what worked for me in practice on the field. So there's all those things that are going to change for Anthony when he gets out there on the field about, hey, what got what he got away with in college, yeah. what's worked for him on the practice field because of his ability, and then what you can actually make happen at NFL speed. But in my mind, again, it just goes back to reps. You can only learn what you can't do and what you can do by going out there and actually doing it in his position. Yeah, I agree. Well, all right, brother, I know you got to get some uh... – some shoots later today. So I thank you for coming. No, definitely, man. Stuff. Thank you very much. Yeah. No, great shot. Awesome. with you guys. I love your podcast. Gojo. Yeah. Every, no. Everyone check it out. DraftKings. <laughs> yeah. No, five days a week. Uh, it's, uh, it's been good, you know, getting to, getting to do stuff and work with my dad again on that. It's been pretty fun. And, you know, my producer was my teammate, like getting to, getting to do it with people I know and trust. And again, DraftKings have been such awesome, awesome partners in this. And I mean, hell, we're at football season now, man. I'm fired Let's up. I'm ready to get back out. You guys road. shoot that every day. Yeah. Ooh, Every day, uh, yeah, cool. daily content. Yeah, again, we, yeah. we went from doing four hours of radio in the morning and uh, afternoon to doing like one hour of a show now. Oh, so it's chilling. like, this is, <laughs> you're just going surfing the rest of the day. Oh, it's incredible, man. Yeah. I go walk down the street and get coffee. I've eaten every breakfast burrito in the South Bay at this point. Let's I have a burrito go. problem. I'm addicted. Oh, wait, what's the best spot? Because I need one. Oof, down here, I go to. Um, I go to Ocean View Cafe. It's down by Uncle Bill's Pancake House in Manhattan Beach. Okay. Um, Uncle Bill's has a little bit more of like the notoriety around there. That's one of the spots people go when they come down there. But Ocean View's right next to it, and I think has one of the better breakfast burritos in the South Bay. And what do they throw in there? Just your classic eggs, hash yeah, browns, avocado, onions. hash browns, some other stuff, and then the, the usual stuff there. You got to ask. They have a little like a, a salsa that they make in house. Mm. It's got a little kick to it, and they serve it on the side. It's like uh, I don't know if you've been to Miami, the Cuban coffee down there, the cafecito. Uh, yeah, I'm from Miami. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there we go. This is the cafecito. How they serve uh, it in a little thimble down yeah, there. Yeah. They serve. This uh, salsa in like a little thimble like that it's because that it potent? is potent. Really? Yeah. Oh, so okay. yeah, check it out. Check it out. Yeah, yeah, it's a good cool. one for you. If you guys are ever down that way, I'll buy you a burrito. Oh yeah, thank you, brother. Yeah, thanks, All guys. Right.